This is Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Well, hey everybody, we have a somber episode for you today. Let's bring it down. Nicholas Souter, he has a disease. We're not sure what it is. It might be it's whatever the host monkey had in uh, Outbreak. That's right. You're patient zero. Yeah. So that's why he's By got... the end of this episode, I'm going to look like Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. and fucking um, Contagion. That's right. Also, spoilers. She I dies. Do, I like that you sound like Cookie Monster. I find it I erotic. thought I sounded like Mavis Staples. Ah, well, okay. You know, to each their own. <laughs> Take me to the water. Ugh. It's like that episode of Friends where Phoebe gets sick and her career gets way better. Smelly cats. And then, and Smelly then cats. <laughs> I brought up a Friends reference. I apologize to everybody. I sang it. I'm cutting myself right now. Um, hey, everybody. Welcome to Blockbuster Film School, the world's greatest film school. My name's Alex Bonner. I will be one of your lead professors. And Braving Death, your other fabulous professor. Elton John's ghost. Elton John's ghost. Mr. Nicholas Souter. Sir Elton John's ghost. Get that shit right, okay? We don't want the queen coming after us. No, you're right. You're right. She's got bigger problems right now than our podcast. Yes, it's a pitch-perfect rendition of the queen. So everyone has that going. Uh, We are not going to talk about Stephen Frears or the queen this time. This week, we are talking about a director that I like quite a bit, and probably a lot of subjects having to do with film. Uh, Her name is Catherine Bigelow. That's right. She spells Catherine with a Y because she's cool. (laughs) That's the cool way to spell it. Some people are like, hells yeah, Catherine fucking Bigelow, and they know what's up. And there's probably a lot of people, which is probably why you're tuning in listening to this episode, don't know that Catherine Bigelow is maybe one of the most influential directors of our time. And literally ushered in some of the more badass concepts in cinema, allowed the door to be open for people like, oh, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino, pretty much that whole poetic, violent wave. Yeah. Anyone who ever made a post-90 violent movie owes something to the Catherine Bigelow. Mm-hmm. She definitely ushered in. We'll get into that. We'll just go into talking about her. Before we do, though, I have one little thing. You know, this is something maybe as a little bit of a segment. We won't do it all the time. But I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a moron and I often fail. And I was thinking about this a few episodes ago, not entirely sure which one. I talk shit about a movie called Hot Tub Time Machine. And I thought about it and I rewatched Hot Tub Time Machine. It's not the greatest movie of all time. However, I do have to say some of the Rob Corddry shit particularly some of the Rob Corddry shit in the third act is fucking elite. And I just wanted to put that out there. I just wanted to like some of the fucking gags, particularly delivered by Rob Corddry in the third act of hot tub time machine are fucking super hilarious. I just needed to get that off my chest. Can I, I, yes. Can I uh, piggyback your segment? Yeah. I rewatched reservoir dogs for the first time in 15 years. Uh, I talk shit about it probably at this point. Mm-hmm. I touched, I think it's known. Yeah. At least you by talk the, some shit about Tarantino. A little bit. Yeah, little just, bit. A, just a touch. I am pleasantly surprised <laughs> to say I still hate that movie. Oh, that's not the segment. We're apologizing. I'm sorry I didn't watch it sooner so I can confirm that Harvey Keitel can't act. 
Well, okay, everyone kind of knows that. Okay, but there's still dope stuff. Okay, come on. I'm talking more Steve Buscemi in that movie. I mean, really. And also Tim Roth. I mean, there's some solid stuff. There's some stuff. I quoted Tim Roth this week. Yeah. I'm saying there's some things pulled off in that movie that I don't think anybody could have ever fucking pulled off. We'll get into the influence, though, because that's an interesting segue into Catherine Bigelow, because there is no Reservoir Dogs without Catherine Bigelow. Well... I think so. I mean, if probably see, Tarantino if, is still bored. I don't think this yeah, is like a top, I mean, top time machine timeline I think, where the kid stops Rob Corddry from banging John Cusack's sister mid banging and then he disappears. And yeah, then I've never seen Rob that Cord- movie. Oh my God. No idea there's, what you're talking about. There's some stuff at the end. I'm just saying there's some Rob Corddry. I heart you. You're always like the character actor who tries to save the entire movie. And you particularly did in that one. All I'm saying is if the, People in, I'm just going to say Asia, because I don't know where real country mm-hmm. is, still made City on Fire. Tarantino could have still ripped off that movie. It's Hong Kong. China. Okay. Right. So would have fucking Scorsese. So would everyone. And the Hong Kong movies would rip off old fucking George Lucas movies. And George Lucas would rip off old Japanese movies. And old Japanese movies would rip off old French movies. And old French movies would rip off old I know. Orson Welles You're movies. Right. You are old- right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to talk a little bit more shit about yes, Tarantino. That is fair. Before we segued back into yes. Mr. Bigelow. Talking shit. Uh, I have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet, but my brother liked it. So let's just go into it. Catherine Ann Bigelow, born November 27th, 1951 um, in San Carlos, California. She grew up in Fullerton, California, Northern California. She went to San Francisco Institute of Art. She's not Hollywood royalty. Her dad ran like a paint factory. Her mother was an actual immigrant from Norway, so she was not at all like some of the directors who had, you know, you know it's not uh, Nicolas Cage, like, hey, my uncle, who's one of the most famous directors, and can I have an audition for a movie? Uh, that's not exactly how it worked. However, Catherine Bigelow ended up going to the Whitney Museum of American Arts Independent Study Program in New York City, which is, let's say, difficult to get into. But she's obviously already a clearly talented painter because that was what she started as. She's a painter, which is also interesting, you know, her as a visual artist. Quite a few of our favorite directors started as visual artists. And she goes to New York where she she lives with as like a literally super poor 1970s New York City fucking artist person. She lives with Julian Schnabel. And if you don't know who Julian Schnabel is, he's one of the most important uh, filmmakers and artists of this time as well. I'm a huge fan of his. He directed Basquiat and Before Night Falls and The Diving Bell of the Butterfly. He's been nominated for a whole bunch of Academy Awards. I'm a huge fan of his. And it's very interesting, the kind of combo of theirs, because his style is also kind of very poetic and violent and has a lot of meditations on things like socioeconomic politics, art, violence. But I would say... He's a little more meditative indie rock, and she's a little more like full tilt, big open chords rock and roll. She started off as like proto goth post punk, mm-hmm. and then turned into like New Order if it was just scoring a Clockwork Orange. I suppose, but then in the '90s, kind of really opens it up and becomes like sort of like pavement or something. I, I hate pavement. Fuck you. And fuck um, you. <laughs> so. Her friend that she lives with and cohort is Julian Schnabel. But then how she makes money, her friend Philip Glass, 
one of the most influential composers in the history of cinema and American music, her and Philip Glass, they start like flipping apartments in Manhattan and that's how they make money. And she actually ends up making a whole bunch of money with Philip Glass as they like take distressed apartments, renovate them and then flip them. So she makes a bunch of money doing that. Then she goes into Columbia University where like her teachers are like Susan Sontag and shit and Milos Forman. And she befriends a lot of them and they really, really like her stuff. She makes a movie called The Setup with one of her friends who she went to school with named Gary Busey. Fear. Functioning. Appearing as something. Was it was fear? What's the Gary Busey? Uh, false evidence appearing real. Got to think about that. It's some Gary Busey. Just dropping knowledge on you motherfuckers. Listen, you guys don't know all the Gary Busey slogans. Anyway, Gary Busey might be the Buddha. He has fallen off motorcycles and damaged his brain many times. Uh, also, his son, Jake Busey, still acting, theoretically. Anyways, this podcast has gone off the rails. You're damn right. This is the blockbuster film school. This is not going to. If you thought you came here for some sort of like actual understanding. I didn't leave the Whitney Independent Study Program <laughs> to come here and talk about Gary Busey. Yes, you did. That's the entire idea. But okay. <laughs> Gary's, Gary's here. Oh, God. His teeth are taking over the room. They're expanding. But Gary Busey is in her very first short movie, which Milos Forman loves. And it's apparently some movie where she gets Gary Busey and another guy to like actually beat the shit out of each other while they kind of ruminate in a conversation about violence on film. It's very meta. It's very film school. But now that I think about it, it's kind of fascinating. I've never seen it, but I would love to check it out. I don't know. Hopefully it'll be on like a criterion of Point Break or something. So Milos Forman really likes that. And that kind of gives her a window into directing. She makes a movie called The Loveless after that. Have you ever seen The Loveless? No. Willem Dafoe's in this? Willem Dafoe, who was also, I guess, a friend of hers. That New York scene, which, you know, Julian Schnabel has obviously Basquiat has kind of made about the fact that, you know, a lot of these circles of people start smaller than you think they do, you know? And I've seen bits and pieces of Loveless. It's like a biker movie. Guess what? It's violent. It's poetic. I've, I don't. It's Catherine Bigelow. It's Catherine Bigelow. But then the next one is kind of her big breakout thing. Now, here's the weird bit. I'm just going to ruminate now. Okay, there's going to be a little bit of me just possibly making shit up or inferring things. So her next movie comes out in 1987. Her first movie, The Loveless, is in 1981. So she has six years in between the two movies. The next one is a much bigger movie. It may have something to do with her writing partner and boyfriend at the time. You don't think so? There are huge gaps in between all of her films. I understand, but I'm just saying... So her writing partner, literally, she's instrumental in helping James Cameron write Terminator. It's funny. It's like James Cameron's movies are also violent and poetic. Weird. And also he like has really powerful women in his life who are kind of more in charge of the movies than he might be actually all the way because he's more of a technical guy and then he needs someone else to actually come up with the fucking stories. Weird. Anyway, why I am inferring this is because that was her longtime boyfriend for a long time was James Cameron. But also like her next movie in 1987 is Near Dark. Right. This is the first one I'm going to be like, if you've never seen Near Dark, then you need to watch Near Dark. What is wrong with it's you? Fucking amazing. It's fucking amazing. It has like three of the actors who were in Aliens and Terminator who are in the sort of little network of people who work with James Cameron. It has a lot of like James Cameron's editor. It has a lot of the James Cameron people. And I'm only saying this. It's like she wrote a really cool script. 
and the Loveless didn't really do anything. Milos Forman got her that movie made, but she wrote a really cool script. And let's face it, Terminator and Aliens had come out. They were huge hits. Cameron passed that along to his agent. Near Dark gets made. Now, Near Dark, she wrote it as a Western, like as a straight up Western. And everyone at the studio liked the script. They thought it was fucking dope as shit. But they basically were like, we we don't make fucking Westerns. This is the 80s. No one likes Westerns. Um, They're trash. They're garbage. They're trash. (laughs) They have cowboy hats. They're garbage. So her and Eric Red, who wrote it, were like, well, what the fuck do we do? And they basically were like, what are those goddamn kids into? The fucking into vampires. The into them vampires. And they made it into like a vampire movie. Nick, do you like Near Dark? I love Near Dark. Hmm. Horror movies and comedies work in the same way where it's either it's so outrageous you laugh or you're so outrageous you're terrified and Near Dark has that scene where they just go and start fucking eating people in the diner Yes, where it goes back and forth like a fucking seesaw Mm -hmm. in near perfection. Bill Paxton. Bill fucking Paxton. Bill fucking Paxton going full Bill fucking Paxton balls out insane just running around. Blood all over his face. Totally. Just eating people. Even before the blood is on his face, that scene, if, okay, so if you've never seen Near Dark, like I said, you need to, because there's going to be some spoilers. Okay, it's Blockbuster Film School. We're just going to talk about these movies. I don't give a shit. You're going to have to, you're just going to have to accept it, mom. Your mom's on Near Dark. (laughs) Of course. And, and if she complained about spoilers, I would, I would block her on Instagram. And, uh, so the scene though, the iconic scene where they show up and it's been referenced in many things. The vampires show up to the shit kicker bar. It's kind of even stolen for the beginning of fucking Terminator 2. But the vampires show up to the shit kicker bar, which in the Western would not go the other way. The bad guys would show up and the good guys would fight them. The shit kickers. And it's like, this is not going the way you think it is. And Bill Paxton is wearing sunglasses at night. And he is wearing a leather jacket. And he looks fucking awesome. And Lance Hedrickson is terrifying. And they proceed to toy with these people. This is the kind of other difference, difference than different than any other vampire movie ever, different than like Nosferatu or Dracula movies. They truly toy with these people like they are fucking cats messing with like fucking hamsters. We're just dicking with you, riling you up before we fucking annihilate you. And in one of the like more hyper violent scenes, still to this day, still stands up, still terrifying, still crazy. But you like it because it's her. Even though there's this serrated edge, there's also this kind of weird softness to this thing where these characters are flawed. You know that they're doing this because they are tragic. They are fucked. They are nihilistically having fun because they know they're fucked. It's weird. Near dark to point break. The violence is sexy. Yeah. And then like starting with strange days, it stops being sexy. Okay. We're We're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm just saying. Yes. No, I agree. I do. Let's let's keep that thread going because I agree with you. I will say this, though. Near Dark, as much as I love it, is kind of flawed in its fucking messiness, right? I could tell you exactly how, like, three scenes of that movie work, like, beat for beat, shot for shot. Some of the lines are thereabouts that certain characters say. But the overall plot and exactly how everything goes down and exactly how everything works, do you remember it exactly? No, not no, at all. It's, it's a messy it's, film. It's a very messy film. And I guess, you know, it's kind of supposed to be messy, but it's also, it's that weird thing. It's like, it's a commercial hit 
not huge, but it's a commercial hit. It's always going to be something that she's able to do, which is it has Hollywood sheen. It has, like I said, it has big, you know, anthem rock riffs, but then has like weird spacey breakdown parts and the song ends weird and you don't even remember how it ends kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, so she also got nominated for, uh, she directed a New Order video, fucking Touched by the Hand of God. Like, it's kind of like making fun of glam metal, which is fucking dope. If you do yourself a YouTube that, uh, it's really cool. So because of the surprise breakout of Near Dark, then she gets like three movies, like back to back to back. Uh, the first one is Blue Steel, which also she works with Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis, big star, but also, you know, kind of against Jamie Lee Curtis's type a little bit, right? Makes Jamie Lee Curtis into more of like an ass kicker, but, you know, like flawed ass kicker action star. It's a, more of a revenge story. She is like vulnerable, but also you've seen Blue Steel, right? Yeah, long time ago. Okay, so basically the plot of Blue Steel is not about Derek Zoolander and one of his faces, although that later would come. It is about a cop in New York City played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who shoots Tom Sizemore, which, no offense Tom Sizemore, should have happened to you many times in your life, but didn't. I still love Tom Sizemore. He's a great actor. Should have shot him the day they fucking <laughs> rap shooting heat. He's a fucking <laughs> The fact that he was the only one on heat who was given a gun with real bullets. Everyone else had blanks in their guns. Um, and he, or he'd give, he brought his own clip. Yeah. He was like, you fucking douchebags don't know how to do this. But anyway, so Blue Steel, Bronze Silver, isn't it? Did you say Bronze Silver? Ron Silver. Oh, okay. Who was in Time Cop, who was the bad guy in Time Cop. He was a 90s character actor. You would recognize him immediately. He was, also he was like, in Veronica's Closet. He's in a lot of stuff. He was also a big time Republican, although, so. Not surprised at all. Not surprised at all, actually. No. Kind of made him good at being a villain, his, really. His entire face and beard scream Republican. Oh, my God. There's no way he didn't have, like, an NRA tattoo, like, on the tip of his penis. It's on the shaft. It's on, well, maybe. That makes sense. But anyway, so Ron Silver's like a psychopath traitor. He sees an opportunity because she drops her guns. He picks up the gun. He fucking goes on a killing spree with it. And then they blame it on her. And she has to figure it out because they're like, you're not a cop anymore. But anyway, it's a crazy revenge cat and mouse story. In the end, she fucking like fucks everybody up. Once again, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of spooky shit. But Jamie Lee Curtis kind of takes on this different role than she's ever had before. And once again, then she would then later be in True Lies. Just interesting that kind of she gets brought into this fold of like Catherine Bigelow, James Cameron stuff. Basically, I explained Blue Steel to you. Watch it if you want. It's uh, two stars, two plus, two stars plus. It's sloppy. It's I don't know. It's OK. Did you like it when you saw it on like HBO when you were 10 and it mess with you? It was on Showtime. <laughs> I remember it was on Showtime. I don't remember much of the movie. I know. I didn't I, give a shit. I rented it from the library. Mm, so An aristocrat. Because it said Catherine Bigelow on the back. But then after that, she makes a little movie I like to call Point Break. This is number two. If you've never seen Point Break, not the stupid ass remake version, the real one. Excuse me? <laughs> not whatever. This, I don't know. I stand by the remake of RoboCop. I, all right, that's it. Hold on. Uh, cut this, Brad. I have to straggle this guy. Fuck it. Fight me. <laughs> all right, and we're back. Uh, Nick beat me severely, and uh, most of my teeth have been knocked out. Okay. Nick, do you like the movie Point Break? I really don't want to fight on this one. Oh, do you not like Point Break? Uh, hold on. <laughs> oh, now he's going to cough because God is angry with him. Okay, here's the thing. Point Break. Mm -hmm. 
Great movie. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to use the O word here. Uh oh, orgasm. Just you saying it gets it going. <laughs> um, overrated. Uh, I would say the other way. I would say that that movie was like one of those ones that came out and everybody was like, this is stupid. Folk surfer action movie, stupid. And it's only sort of gained steam ever since because once you watched it, you were like, holy shit. What am I watching? No one has ever made a movie like this before. No one has ever made a movie like this again. No one has ever even attempted a homoerotic bromance that involves bank robbers, surfers, Lori Petty, Gary Busey, and fucking flee from Red Hot Chili Peppers trying to push Keanu Reeves' face into a lawnmower that is going, okay? There is so much dope shit in that movie. Is and it Flea or Anthony Kiedis? It's Flea. Anthony Kiedis is in it. Yeah. But Flea's like, Flea's the one who can act. Okay. I mean, let's fix it. Yeah. <laughs> fucking needles. Fucking. Okay. McFly! Um, also, I'll tell the Flea story one day. About the time Flea gave me fucking free tickets to go see Red Hot Chili Peppers because I let him use my phone. That's a real story. Um, but uh, Brian was there. Brian Brian can attest that that's real. And Speak up, Super Producer Brian Super Tabs. Producer Brian Tabs. That was not a real air horn. I made that with my mouth. So He's just putting a mark on it. <laughs> to put real air horn type control S. So I love Point Break. I rented it for Blockbuster Video. I already was a big Ted Theodore Logan fan. I grew up being instilled not only just by my parents, but also by SNL and everyone else in the world who told me that Patrick Swayze was dope as fuck and his hair. But also, I know there's like Roadhouse, but like kind of truly Swayze being allowed to act a little bit and be a little bit more something else than he normally is. Like, I'm going to tell you, he's a little evil in this movie. But in like the coolest possible way, like in the cult leader way. Here's my thing. Okay. I love Keanu Reeves. Mm -hmm. I love Johnny Utah. Sure. (laughs) I love fucking Patrick Swayze in this. The Bodhisattva. Bodhi. (laughs) Continue. Action scenes are all very cool. Dope. Surfing scenes are good. Gary Busey in a fucking flower shirt. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. The components of this movie, Mm -hmm. it all works. It does. And it is a good movie. Yes. But at the same time, I don't think it's as amazing as everybody says it is. That's my whole thing. Right. If it's on, I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. Like, not the whole thing. I it's would. not the burbs. I know. But for me, though, I will also, say real fast, it is the, maybe the Catherine Bigelow movie that truly, though, combines all the stuff I like of her stuff and is that exact dope 90s album that she put out. For me, it's the one that, yes, if I see it. And normally I just catch it on HBO at the scene where they're on the beach and they find out that Keanu Reeves was a college football star. And then they start to fall in love with him. And he's an undercover FBI agent who's supposed to find out that they're bank robbers, but he falls in love with them. And he never really had friends, but they're his friends and he loves them. And he's never had a girlfriend, but he loves Lori Petty, but he can't tell them this. You can't tell them this. How to put this. It's so much like actual thoughtful shit, right? Like most action movies have the most trite, fucking reasons why you would commit violence, the most trite reasons why you would do things. And this one, out of nowhere, a movie about surf bank robbers and the FBI agents who are after them has some of the most complex fucking reasons why you would do violence and crime 
than any movie I've ever fucking seen. And some of the most heady reasons, literally the bank robbers in this movie just want to be surfers. They hate fucking capitalism. They hate the world. They're these like weird poet fucking warrior sort of like anarchists who are like, fuck the world. We're just going to steal money and surf forever. We're not trying to hurt anybody. And then because Keanu Reeves inserts himself he is the reason they start having to hurt people, even though he doesn't then want to hurt them and then tries to stop it. It's like, holy shit, all of this fits together. He desperately wants love, but he never got it. So that's why he chose order. And now he's met these guys who get, offer him love and chaos and he doesn't know what to fucking do. It's like, but yet packaged like Catherine Bigelow does, like just a big budget action movie that has guys shooting guns and handsome dudes and hot girls. And, you know, it's like she knows what she's doing, you know, and I'll put it this way. The word I would use with Catherine Bigelow stuff is in the most positive sense that it is manipulative, right? It misdirects you in one direction near dark. This is a vampire movie. It's, no, a, it's not. It's not. This is a cowboy. Eh, no, it's not. It has ruminations on death. It has ruminations on loyalty it has fucking deep poetic concepts on death and what the fuck any of that means. Bigelow is manipulative and subversive in her shit. She registers, and we'll probably have to go into this some because um, straight white males like us should be talking about women in film. Okay, first of all, right? That's what's important. <laughs> and their role. But there is an element, okay? Because obviously, Catherine Bigelow is super important just as an icon, particularly for women in film. Obviously, it's not a fucking secret. She's the only the only woman to win Best Director at the Oscars. She's the only woman to ever win a Saturn Award for Best Director, BAFTA Award. For, you know what I'm saying? Like the fucking Catherine Bigelow is the most fucking heralded female director of all time in the history of Hollywood. There are ones who have been more successful, maybe financially. Efron, maybe. I don't know. Amy Spheris, maybe. But there are none that have been as critically pushed forward and fucking allowed to fucking get weird with her shit as Catherine Bigelow, in my mind. And I think that's because Catherine Bigelow, she registers that Hollywood is this fucking fucked up machine. It is sexist. It is racist. It is fucking manipulated to be a weird status thing. Uh, just so you know, though, everybody, um, it's pretty much just a mirror for the fucking society that it's fucking getting the money from. So <laughs> that's a little weird thing to think about. But she's like, OK, I can't just make a movie that's about these things, these philosophical things. I have to package them with Hollywood shit. And she's like one of the only people who's ever pulled this the fuck off. I mean, I think like literally like Spielberg's done it, but I'm literally saying her in the same breath with someone like fucking Steven Spielberg, which I think she should be mentioned as and only isn't because of fucking sexism in America and Hollywood. That's what I that's all I was going to say. So Nick's favorite movie is Point Break is what I'm saying. Um, he's wearing a Point Break T-shirt and Point Break sweatpants right now. They were uh, Christmas gifts. That's right. It just has a picture of Gary Busey on the ass. So. Okay, well, we'll get to the blockbuster wall. There's not as many, because that's the other thing, is that Bigelow's kind of a true auteur. She hasn't made that... She hasn't directed that many movies. She's always working. She's always doing stuff. She's made nine. She's made nine films, right. But, you know, as in comparison to, like, say, like, Scorsese or... Um, like, I know she's a, a little younger, but she's still a baby boomer. She's, like, our parents' age. She's 67. Yeah, she's born in 51. So, so true, like, baby boomer. But, like, you know, fucking... James Cameron has directed like what nine, 10 movies, something like that. So 
Eight of them are Avatar movies. Eight. <laughs> They're going to be. You know what's crazy, though? And I know this is a little bit of a side subject, but I have this feeling, because he's James Cameron, this new Avatar movie is not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to be like Avatar 2 in the way that you think it's going to be Avatar 2. It's going to be something crazy. It's going to be like Aliens or something. It's going to be just kind of in that same way of like Terminator 1 to Terminator 2. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt until I see it. If it's real dumb, then I'll say it, okay? I fully admit that it's dumb, but I'm a James Cameron nerd up to Titanic. Avatar is amazingly technical, beautiful. It's insane. But it's I'll take your word on it. It's dopey as shit. Yes, I know you have a weird thing. I've never you, seen you Avatar. To watch now the second highest grossing box office movie of all time. Uh, there's a movie called Avengers Endgame that came out. I'm going to be that guy. What about when you in- adjust for inflation? Well, that's fair, but we're only talking about 10 years ago. So, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes. For infl- well, actually, I mean, the highest selling tickets of all time is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind sold the most tickets of all time. And so if a ticket to Gone with the Wind cost $15, it would have smashed the living shit out of anything. But it cost, I don't know, a a hay nickel. But I know I'm being effusive about Point Break. But I will say this before we move on. I'll put it this way. Maybe as a musical analogy, it's Kerplunk, right? It's not exactly you would call it the greatest album of all time or anything. But when Green Day puts that out around the same time period, it sort of changes mainstream music altogether whether you like it or not. And you sort of have to like a piece of it just by nostalgia alone. And in that same way that point breaks, the one that opens the door, it makes a lot of money. It's weird. It's violent. If that's Kerplunk, which one's dookie. Okay. I guess it's dookie then I guess. Okay. I just sort of liked Kerplunk more, but it allows this door then to swing open of Hollywood being like, if these kind of weird, poetic, anti-hero, violent movies fucking can work at the box office, then maybe we should take a shot on some of these fucking weirdo indie movie people who are doing this kind of shit. And that's when they start to let Quentin Tarantino do his thing. And that's when they start to, you know, it's kind of all roped in together. I know that literally Pulp Fiction is right after this. Like, I swear to God, I'm almost positive that Pulp Fiction is put into production because it gets the green light and gets pulled out of its weird nebulous thing that it was in. Should we make this movie? Should we not? We like the script, but what the fuck is it? When Point Break comes out, there's a lot of movies from there. A lot of movies. I think Natural Born Killers, you know, they let fucking Oliver Stone get nuts with shit. Well, he had to make that because it was a Tarantino script. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right, right. But also Oliver Stone at that point was already cemented as a weirdo. And of course, because of the sexism, they don't immediately go, oh, shit, we should let Catherine Bigelow make whatever the fuck she wants. They're like, we should find a dude to do it because let's not bring up Miramax. Um, but Bigelow uses her cachet from Point Break to make strange days. I know I ruminate this, but she only was married to James Cameron from 1989 to 1991. But they still are like cool and work together. And literally wrote and produced Strange Days together in 1995, four years after they got divorced. So, you know, they clearly still are working together. Nick, what's Strange Days about? What would you say Strange Days is about? Strange Days is basically about abusive power, uh, racism. Ooh. It's about rape culture. Yeah. It's about... Uh, Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore. Yeah. It's about Tom Sizemore's off-screen life. True. Do you remember the plot 
of Strange Days? Strange Days is my favorite Catherine Bigelow film. Dope, dope. It is a dope film noir. It's a great film. Um, even though it came out in 95, it takes place on New Year's Eve and a couple days before New Year's Eve, 1999, before the millennium. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those futuristic sci-fi films that does one simple thing to make it the future and sci-fi. So they have these squib things that like you put it like on your head. It looks like like a fucking lobster. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, I like this description. Like a lobster body cast. Just like the future, just like 1999. Yeah, just like 1999. That'll all happen. Yeah. It connects to a mini disc player. You guys remember <laughs> mini discs? Also, we Sony, all use them right now. I'm using one right yeah, now. That's why Sony is so popular now because of the mini disc. <laughs> so people use this to record their memories mm-hmm. and then they sell it in the black market. And like some of them, there's a really nice scene in the movie where Ralph Fiennes sells it to a guy in a wheelchair and it's just Ralph Fiennes on the beach running yeah, and just looking at his legs yeah. and the guy starts fucking crying. And it's the guy from the abyss who has the rats. Oh yeah. I like that it's guy. This is only scene in that movie. The other part of that is the opening scene where it's a fucking bunch of dudes robbing like a fucking Chinese restaurant. And then they go up the stairs and they're running and they're, that's the thing about a Catherine Bigelow movies is yeah. the adrenaline. Yeah. And this movie has all the adrenaline, but oh, it's fucking yeah. super dark and greedy. And the end of the clip, it's the dude falling off the mm-hmm. roof as he jumps to the next one and scaring off fine. So Ralph finds is a dealer. Somebody leaves a clip for him of basically two LA cops shooting an unarmed black rapper. Yeah. Just because he's black. Yeah. Which shocker. Yeah. And then that's not a problem anymore. I think they said Cameron came up with the script in 86, but Bigelow rewrote it after LA riots and Rodney King. Yeah. And that is very clear in this. Like the climax of the movie is basically Angela Bassett being beat in front of a large crowd by a bunch of white cops. Yeah. The movie is all about racism. It's all about sexism. Like it is a hard watch, yeah. but it is worth it. If you get through it, uh, the rape scene in this is, and the murder scenes. She always, she has some rape scenes in it. Yeah. She always has some rape scenes in her movies, which they're ubiquitous, right? Which is interesting because she just like has them. Like sometimes they're critical to the story like in this, but like there's sort of a rape scene in Point Break. You know, where the like weird surf Nazi guys have that like girl and they just like break in and the surf Nazi guys are like, what the fuck's going on? You know, like there's just like rape culture exists. Yeah. yeah but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but I mean, but you're right. I mean, she is a woman. Rape culture is yeah. everywhere around her, just the way it's around every woman in the world. And the fact that she just like talks about it, like yeah. that it's in the movies, you know, that it's in there, you know, so that it's but just if you're going to watch Strange Days, this one is particularly rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it involves the squibs and yeah, there's a lot of mind fuckery. Yeah. It. It's a hard movie, but it's a great fucking movie. And everyone in it is really good. Like yeah. Angela Bassett was in this like right after fucking what's love got to do with it. And is com- oh, she yeah. plays a fucking badass in this. It's crazy because as on the other side, on the like the straight up nerds Hollywood side of it, it almost derailed her career because it cost forty two million dollars to make, which was pretty big budget at the time. And it only made like eight, eight. Yeah. And was like, well, <laughs> oh, you know, it was her trying something bigger, you know? And I always appreciate directors who get the opportunity and fucking take a swing at the fences. Like fuck trying to make just like the same album again and just keep making the same album. Cause it's safe. Like I got some success. I got a shot. I'm gonna try something fucking bananas, but just real fast. The yeah. fucking cast of this, 
You got Ralph Fiennes and Angela Bassett. You got Juliette Lewis. And those are like normal actors, not right. Juliette Lewis, but Tom Sizemore. He's whacked. Vincent D'Onofrio playing one of the racist cops. He's uh-huh. really fucking good at this. Michael Wincott. We couldn't remember his name yeah. in a different episode. Yeah. He's the weird guy from fucking Alien uh, Resurrection. He's like on all those. He's great. Yes. Michael Wincott. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then you got William Fitcher, Glenn Plummer. But then there was a side of people who liked it a lot. Critics either hated it or yeah. they fucking loved it. Yeah. I remember Ebert liked it a lot. I remember. He gave uh, it four stars. Yes. Ebert thought it was fucking amazing. I remember that it won the Saturn Award, like I said. Angela which, Bassett won. And then yes. she won for Best Director. First female to win. Yes. Visually, it's fucking dope. Visually, it's amazing. All of the the memories that are being replayed mm-hmm. are all like first person POV shit. It also is spooky in just how like actually good sci-fi though. It didn't work out exactly with mini discs and lobster heads, but like but everything we, else is real, but a lot everything of everything else is kind of going on. You can watch a video of your past on your phone. I'm sure yeah. right now you could just watch it and your past you could live stream. Yeah. You doing a bunch of nasty shit to people and yeah. it'll be up on the internet totally. for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Black mirror just steals everything from yeah. Gotham Bigelow. And James Cameron. They basically just called James Cameron. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, what if, like, uh, in the future, like, a toaster is secretly watching you, but then you can't have toast anymore. Like, yes, you can't have toast anymore. I'm writing this down. Yes, of course. Can't. And the toast is watching you. Is that what you said? Also, Stop calling me. You don't realize this, but you're ripping off <laughs> Daniela Ocheska's poetry book, Sis and Jay. Oh, am I? That's literally the first fucking chapter of her book. Maybe that's like that weird bonobo monkey experiment they did in the 70s yeah. where they taught some bonobo monkey. Like there's bonobo monkeys on a bunch of islands in like Indonesia and they taught on one island bonobo monkeys how to use this like like a walnut cracker. <laughs> like they taught them how to yeah. fucking use it and they like they liked it and they were like dope. And then they went to another island and they just sort of threw a walnut cracker at the bonobo monkeys like a couple months later. And they those bonobo monkeys like figured out how to use it like instantly. Like maybe there was like a collective unconscious between bonobo monkeys. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Side story real fast. Um, when the Sun-Times was a real newspaper and when Roger <laughs> Ebert yes. was still alive yes. on the Sunday thing in the arts entertainment section, they had a list of Ebert's four star movies mm. that were playing that week, whether it was like on TV. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. Also, they would have a television show with yeah. him where he would, yeah. him and his robot friend would argue over. <laughs> I love Gene Siskel, but I love that Gene Siskel would be like, well, technically, there are many flaws. Uh, at minute 79, I became bored and was disconnected. Like, disconnected from what? Nothing. Never mind. Repeat yeah. sentence. Reboot. Prove, Reboot. Prove human. But also, somebody must have rewrote his programming because one year he said his favorite movie was Babe Pig in the City. I, you know what, though? As much as like Gene Siskel was the quote unquote cold calculated one, he often was like by far the most like saccharine nostalgic one. Like if you could make the robot cry, he would then like the movie no yeah. matter how fucking stupid it was. I, but if you got a like a, any sort of reaction out of Ebert. Oh, yeah. You were guaranteed like three to four stars. Absolutely. Absolutely. He gave Escape from L.A. three and a half stars. I think I like later in life realized that like certain things I had just seen from their television show kind of processed into my head. And later I thought they were my own ideas. And I've you know watched clips of him later. And I think I watched a one about Terminator, which, you know, this is a little bit of a half James Cameron episode as well. But that he brought up this idea in Terminator. He was like, the action sequences made my heart begin to beat faster. And he was like, if nothing else, that was happening. And the actual filmmaking, the editing and the music and the way the images moved 
created an actual physical reaction to me. And that's always stuck with me because I was like, you know, it's like make you laugh or make you tear up. These are, I don't want to say easier, but it's almost like people just in general are more accustomed to being able to do that. People every day are capable of telling you a story that is funny or telling you a story inside of themselves that is sad, you know, but telling you a story that's fucking straight up super exciting, like that gets you excited while they're telling it. That's harder to do. And it's harder to like conceive. I don't know. And the fact that Catherine Bigelow is so good at it and the fact that James Cameron's so good at it, it's intriguing. It's almost as if Cameron was the pompous fucking, you know, lead guitarist, lead singer, and she was in the band, and she, but she was the real talent with the fucking bass. She was the drummer, but who also wrote most of the songs, and you didn't know that, you know? It's like that kind of dynamic like that a little bit. And like I said, with Gail Ann Hurd playing bass, you know, and when all three of them together, all three of them had their best shit. You know? Alex, if you yeah. want to start a band with me and super producer Brian Taps, yes, just say something. Can we call it Gail Ann Hurd? Because that'd be fucking. Uh, cool. yes, we fucking can. <laughs> I, Brian has to play all the. Brian instruments. has to play everything. Yeah, I'll, we could do. We'll be backup singers. Okay, so it doesn't destroy her career because she's too fucking talented for that. However, she kind of has to rebuild herself. Something that it was very close to my heart. I was a big fan of a show called Homicide: Life on the Street. Uh, Great fucking show. She directs episode of Homicide Life on the Street, which literally NBC, one of the few channels that did this, they would have a show that came out on Friday and it was their kind of PG-13 R show. They would do this. If you've never seen Homicide Life on the Street, a lot of the people who worked on it ended up being part of The Wire and that grittiness. I've talked about it before, but that element, Andre Braher was fucking amazing in it. Homicide Life on the Street is this amazing cop show set in Baltimore where the homicide cops have problems. They're not necessarily good guys. And the people that they arrest are not necessarily bad guys. Everything is much more human. Everything is much more poetic, but also the violence is much scarier. But she kind of comes back with that. She gets nominated for Emmys for some of those. She makes a couple of movies. I've never seen The Weight of Water. I don't think it has to have anything to do with people having sex with fish, like that movie that Del Toro <laughs> made. She tried to come back and make a very, very Hollywood movie in 2002, a little movie called K-19, The Widowmaker. Uh, and I tried to watch The Way to Water. How was it? It was bad. It's Yeah, it's rough. I don't know what the hell happened. Uh, she had a little moment there in the 2000s where it wasn't going so hot. I think she second-guessed herself. because think, yeah. When yeah. she hit 2009 or 2010, whenever she made fucking Hurt Locker, yeah. she knew... Exactly what she wanted to do. Look, her style changed again. Yeah. And she came out fucking swinging. Mm -hmm. She makes The Way to Water and K-19, The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson, which is just like a fucking paint-by-numbers, early 2000s, sort of uh, the hunt for Red October, but lamer. And uh, it doesn't work. So then, as you said, she retools. But she doesn't make another movie until 2008, which is The Hurt Locker. Now, this is like the other fucking magnum opus. The other side... Still, it is shown at the fucking closing night of the Venice Film Festival already. It's getting all of this fucking buzz. Like, it's like, holy shit. It has Hawkeye in it. Uh, Who? Jeremy Renner. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Um, it has a bunch of character actors who are all now in everything, as well as, you know, kind of bigger stars like, you know, Guy Pierce, uh, David Morse, Ray Fiennes again. She brings back, you know, she has her crew, right? Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie, for sure. I think there are more connects in the Hurt Locker to Point Break than there are to any of her other movies. 
It's got this wildness to it. It's got this comedy to it, but it has that stuff. It has these through lines, these through lines of people who want things in their life and they don't know how to get them. So they use fucking adrenaline and violence and chaos in order to fill holes inside of themselves and try to figure things. Evangeline Lilly, two Avengers in that fucking movie. Uh, Who's she? She's his wife back home. No, which Avenger is she? The Wasp. So there's three Avengers in that movie. Yes. Yes, correct. What, who's the other one? Anthony Mackie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's oh, Falcon. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my fault. Uh, okay, so this is the third one. If you've never seen The Hurt Locker, then you need to do yourself a favor. It won all the awards. It did. Including her winning Best Director, which is kind of the big milestone. It's a crazy-ass movie. I don't think it's the most realistic movie? Hell no. But it doesn't fucking matter. But that's like Point Break. It's like you just lose yourself in this world where this can happen. It's not the world, but it's this world. And it's sort of like our world, but it's seen through these weird glasses. Like people have the same problems and things that are lost inside of them, like our world, but it's like way more accentuated. Like it's got that element, like a little bit of Kubrick where- Things are accentuated. Everything is accentuated because you're in a fucking crazy ass scenario. But they play that up. Like the fact that like, spoiler alert, Jeremy Renner is a bomb expert in the U.S. Army in the Iraq war. He says spoiler is at the plot. Right. But the spoiler is that he initially is like, this shit is fucking fucked up. It's dangerous. This fucking fucking with me. And then he comes home and is like, oh, actually, That's where I am at home. I like this fucking adrenaline. I like being the fucking crazy guy who goes after the bombs. What I don't like is being back at home and being just a regular dude who's not fucking addicted to adrenaline. I don't like that. I hate that. That the hurt lot, like, you know, this element like that he's trying to get back there. He's trying to get back and it's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. Uh, you got any other thoughts on the Hurt Locker? I mean, I do it no justice right now. It's a classic. It's a cinematic classic. It is a cinematic classic. It is a war movie that is more about what it's like to just be a person. Right. Doesn't matter what war is going on. All the performances are really fucking good in it. It's a beautifully shot movie. Right. The scene where he's the dude has a cell phone and he's running towards it and then the bombs start going off behind him. Mm-hmm. It's shot similarly to like all those action scenes where like a bomb goes off and everybody tries to look cool. Like James Woods walking away from that hotel and John Carpenter's vampires. Yeah. I'm bringing that up. Yeah. And his fucking old Republican ass (laughs) doesn't catch on fire or fall over. No. This guy's running from one of those bombs you step on in the fucking ground. A mine. And his whole, thank you. (laughs) A landmine perhaps. (laughs) Yes. And his whole... An IED, which is a much scarier thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And his whole fucking life is thrown forward towards the guy with the cell phone, literally towards that guy's hands. Yeah. Like, the scenes where Jeremy Renner is cutting the wires... Oh, my God. Like you said, it makes your fucking pulse pick up. It is... Watching that movie, you feel so much what the characters are doing that you hit the same adrenaline they are Yes, to a portion that you can't conceive what they're doing. Agreed. Agreed. It also has a bit, and kind of why I've been bringing this up, kind of interesting gangster-ass moment, which is that that same year, her ex-husband and ex-cohort 
at the time, by far the highest grossing movie of all time. James Cameron made Avatar. Which 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 movie is that? Uh, that's the one where the like aliens can like fuck with their tails like a dinosaur, and then they can fly on the dinosaur after they tail fuck it. And no wait, are you fucking with me? No, that's real. That's really part of the movie. That's, that's dude. You're t- dude. I'm telling you, there's some shit to watch in Avatar. Not that it's uh, like good, good. Um, there's a part no. where there's a part where I'm like, not watching it for the podcast. Oh, you're, he's gonna when we do the James Cameron episode, he's gonna do it. It's, I'm not gonna watch it. Oh come on, I'll clockwork orange you. We'll fuck it. I'll duct tape you to a chair and fucking tape your eyes open. I love you, but I'll do that. I can sleep with my eyes open. I'm Italian. <laughs> I know you are. It'll osmosis into you. Dude, you know me. I'm crazy. I'll fucking learn every single line to Avatar and just start saying it and doing it around you. So in a way, you will have seen it because I will have just repeated the entire script to you and I'll act out things and be like, I'm the dinosaur. If if that's a real way to watch movie, Mm -hmm. then I've seen Tommy Boy 30 more times than I have. You've also seen like Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. exactly. But here's what I'm saying. The gangster ass moment comes because... Based on the normal algorithm of Hollywood, if you made the highest grossing movie of all time, whether it's good or not, whether it's the best in the series, uh, The Return of the King, you win the awards. You win. You've won Hollywood. And now you get an Oscar, whether it matters or not. Right. But not this time. Catherine Bigelow won. And her movie won. And she fucking came up there and didn't say dick in the most badass way. She wasn't like, I'm the first woman. And that's like, she was just like, Gave her fucking accepted speech, which was dope. It talked about fucking all the people who fucking helped her fucking get there. And it was gangster. And then she fucking literally pulled out a gun and she shot James Cameron right there. In that, and it was the coolest Oscars ever. He didn't die, but she shot him right in the dick. She shot him in the arm the way Jamie Lee Curtis got shot in the arm <laughs> in Blue Steel. Yes. Correct. Also, which one's Return of the King? Um, Lord of the Rings. I didn't see that one either. It's the third one. Yeah, it's for real. I'm telling you, it's why the podcast is happening. Because he's like seen some movie that's called like some thing that A24 didn't even want to put out. He definitely saw that. But like, I have to be the one who it's watched. It's called Hot Summer Nights. And it was, <laughs> if I can re-edit it, it'll be a good fucking movie. They got to get rid of the narration. <laughs> right. They got to get rid of the first 10 right. minutes. But you are aware they made Lord of the Rings movies and they made money. I saw part of the second one. Okay. I didn't see the third or the first one. Was it the part with the trees? Yeah, and then I left. <laughs> Dude, if nothing else, the part where fucking Hela, the god of death, is Galadriel is fucking kind of dope. There's some dope stuff. Okay, so then she makes a sequel. More or less. To fucking the Hurt Do you like heroes? This movie doesn't have any. No. Did you like all the sort of weird Kubrickian fun that was in the Hurt Locker? Yeah, we ain't going to do that in this one. (laughs) This one is the one where Star-Lord fucking myrtleizes... Osama bin Laden. I went to that movie with a person who shall not be named. It's, uh, it's, all right. It's character actor Tom Sizemore. Okay. We went to the movie together and, uh, told you to stay away from it. We, we smoked crack. So I may have enjoyed it more than I thought, but she makes zero dark 30, which I have to say when I first saw it, I did laugh at the beginning, which got a weird, awkward, just like people turning around and looking at me because at the beginning they are torturing a guy the CIA has a black side of a guy and they are torturing him by keeping him in a, like a dark room and he's like chained to the floor and they're making him listen to cannibal corpse real loud. <laughs> and I was like, I listened to that in my headphones in a dark room by myself. I was like, is that, is that what torture is? Yes, it is Alex. <laughs> We're all very concerned about you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I fucking laughed. <laughs> Everyone was not, they were like, we don't, we don't get it, man. What do you, 
Let's all watch the movie, the murder porn, where they quote unquote kill Osama bin Laden. Fake news. Fake news. It is a little weird as an action movie. It's fucking, it's clean as fuck. Like she directs the shit out of that movie. I love the fucking cinematography in that movie. Like there's pinpoint action sequences in that that are fucking violent and fucking nuts. It flows. Like as I'm watching it, I kind of hate it, right? Where the Hurtlocker's kind of anti-war. This, in a weird way, is sort of pro-war. and I didn't get that. Not pro-war, but it was like, it's like, if only you would have listened to us, that we were doing the right thing, torturing these guys, that we would have figured it out first, and we would have stopped, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's through lines where I was like, okay, I get where, and like, these Navy SEALs are heroes, what they did, and they they fucking, the last moment, they were like, we gotta do this, we gotta do this now, you wishy-washy Obama, fucking, we gotta do this, and I was just like, I don't know, I, I, I it's literally maybe the most well-executed action movie where I kind of hated all the fucking protagonists. I don't think you were supposed to like anybody in that movie, okay, were you? No, I I understand. I, I but that's the thing that I liked about fucking Catherine Bigelow is that you're not necessarily supposed to like these characters. You're supposed to relate to them. You don't like Bodie. You're like he's cool. Like I don't. Or there's something about him. Like okay, the, but here's the thing. Right. She's allowed to change, and you talked about that with Incorrect. the next Avatar Incorrect. movie. No, they have to do exactly what I like. Aliens, right? Right. Those. What if her right? sequel to Fucking the Hurt Locker mm-hmm. is the most anti-American yeah. war movie of all time. No, I, I did. It's all just like I watched that movie and I was like, she fucking hates every character mm-hmm. in this movie. They're all supposed to be fucking bastards, right? And it is torture porn, but it's also like it's nasty. Porn right. is disgusting. Sometimes. I agree. I'll put it this way. I agree with you. I'm not. No, I like that she tried something different. I like that it's like straight up her metal album. It's the fucking one of the nastiest, cleanest, most vicious fucking action movies I've ever seen. Every last action sequence in it is like pinpoint as fuck. Like when they flip over to night vision and are going into fucking rooms, there's like people are screaming and you just it feels spookily real. You're like, this is the craziest video game I've ever witnessed. I appreciate that. I just personal taste. I just miss Catherine Bigelow, the poetic action movie director who makes weird action movies that you didn't even know you wanted to see like the hurt locker or point break or near dark. That's personal taste of the Catherine Bigelow. I like just like, I don't like the bridge or minority report or when fucking Spielberg gets all nerdy and boring and fucking overly cerebral. Like I like Jurassic park and you can't make the same album every time. Man. I know you can't make the same album every then time. Then you turn into block party. I <laughs> going after block party. That burn, fucking head burn, tilt over here. Burn, burn, burn I appreciate block, that. Burn down block party. We're sorry. Block party. You can come on the, you can, um, no, you can't make the same one every time. I know Scorsese's made movies. I don't like, but not as many. That's all. It's just personal taste. Yeah. Whereas if The Hurt Locker or Point Break comes on TV, I just sort of watch it because it's so magnetic and there's so much like this scene is happening. You're like, what is this scene? This shit's crazy. Like, what the fuck am I watching? Like, and even the parts in The Hurt Locker that aren't the crazy ass, like, am I cutting the right chord in the craziest version of am I cutting the right chord ever? There's just like scenes where he's talking to other crazy people in a war zone and they're having some of the most fascinating and bizarre and hilarious and sad conversations I've ever seen on film, you know? 
And that's fucking crazy. But yeah, um, Johnny Utah. Uh, did you see Detroit? I didn't. I didn't but I very that. much feel like it is in the vein of mm. Zero Dark Thirty because it is literally just like a two hour and a half movie about police racism and just these people being caught up in a fucking building. Yes. Trying to escape with their lives from racist ass cops. Fair. Fair. Maybe the days of fun poetic action is over because the world's too violent now. And right. Cause the next one's about Bo Bogdahl or whatever, however you pronounce his name, starring Tom Hardy, the guy who like goes AWOL. Oh yeah. Which maybe could be like a weird comedy. I don't know. <laughs> like I don't know. Every movie Tom Hardy is in mm-hmm. is unintentionally a comedy. <laughs> and if it's supposed to be a comedy, it's just like some weird Shakespearean tragedy. I think that's why Venom did so well in China is because they get that. They're like, yeah. this shit is hilarious. This is hilarious. <laughs> This movie's so bad, they're just having fun now. They're having a great time. Yeah. America's like, what? What? But yeah, so, I mean, I haven't seen Detroit either. I know. This is, we're doing a Catherine Bigelow episode, and I haven't seen Detroit. I haven't seen her first movie. I haven't seen her last movie. But we're I do love her. We're here th- for the hits. I think her shit is great. I think her shit is great. I feel like we have kind of consensus of what we would put on the blockbuster recommendation wall. Ours are going to be different, though. You, oh, what, what would yours be? Number three is Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Number two, despite the fact we said it's a messy movie, and the last half hour of that movie, you know in Beetlejuice, when the sandworm doesn't come through the ceiling yet, but yeah. everybody turns and goes, ah, <laughs> yeah. the last half hour of Near Dark is that scene just yeah. over and over yeah. on a loop. Correct. But number two is Near Dark just because it is mm-hmm. pure goth. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. It's so nihilistic. Yeah. So violent. So cool. Bill fucking Paxson. Bill fuck. Well, our Bill Paxson episode is going to fucking rock. Our Bill Paxson episodes. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, Number one, I, I Strange <laughs> Days. Yeah. Love Strange Days. Okay. Love it. All right. Well, I would go slightly different, obviously. I would say my number three is Near Dark. It's fucking dope as shit. It's super electric. The scenes that work, work. They are iconic. They changed the vampire genre. They changed the horror genre. They changed the whole damn thing. Two is the Hurt Locker, which, like I said, has just so much same things. Just the scenes in it that work are preposterously electric. There's how many movies have had the do I cut the blue wire or the red wire? How many fucking action movies have that in it? Like hundreds, thousands, maybe. It's that Eminem is ad now before the movie starts. Yeah. But this one does it differently. It does it in a way where you're like, oh, shit, like this is actually happening. This is for real. This is I care about these characters and I'm actually watching this. And I'm also understanding the thought process of what goes into this. And it's making my heart race. It's fascinating. If you've never seen The Hurt Locker, do yourself a favor. And for me, I'm going with my number one. K-19, The Widowmaker. That's right. The Harrison Ford classic. Fucking when he's full early 2000s, Harrison Ford calling it in, not taking his earring out. I don't care what you say to me. I'm doing it. Just pointing at William. Just, Clarissa Flockhart loves this earring. <laughs> what is it? You switch the samples. You switch the samples. Um, that's my Harrison Ford impression. <laughs> Listen, it's bananas. It's 90s, but it is point break. There's parts of it that just stand out in my mind. I think also... It's the one that for me, like the old Catherine Bigelow of her being a painter, there's elements in there. Some of the images and sequences, there's a scene. I know this is going to sound weird, but there's a scene where Keanu Reeves finds himself perving out on Lori Petty. He doesn't even know why he's doing it. He's watching them with binoculars. And then he finds himself watching Lori Petty because she's so attractive. And she goes to her car and she 
puts a towel on and she underneath the towel takes her swimsuit bottoms off and then puts jean shorts on under it and then takes the towel off and the jean shorts are still sort of unbuttoned and then she hops in her convertible and drives away and it's like what the fuck was that like there's this spooky like vignette sexual thing that's also creepy but also like really this very pretty vignette and it happens over and over again in that movie that's either like very sexual or very violent and i don't know and but how also, many times does she change her fucking underwear i don't know i don't know it's california man you're just in the ocean like it doesn't matter and she's the girlfriend of surf ninja bank robbers they wear the masks of former u.s presidents when they rob banks i know that's very on the head of talking shit in terms of like metaphors and movies but it sort of felt awesome in the 90s. Like everyone would steal that after that, but it was fucking awesome at the time. You know, it was something different. It was something different. Point Break was something different and I love it. And it's fun and poetic and fucking nuts. There's a part where they jump out of a fucking airplane while some of them have already been shot and one of the guys dies and Keanu doesn't have a fucking goddamn parachute and they filmed a lot of that. Like, with actual Keanu and actual fucking Patrick Swayze jumping out of airplanes. It's like, holy shit, what am I watching? So, yeah, for me, my number one is The Point Break, which is the real title. The La Point Break. But, yeah, so, obviously, she's still running around. She's still making movies. I will watch Detroit. I think it was just like, I don't know, it, was, it seems very depressing to me. It's a uh, little too timely. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she's one of the most important filmmakers of all time, particularly of this time period. And uh, I dig her shit. I think she's great. What other Catherine Bigelow? You got any other Catherine Bigelow stuff you want to say? Any other notes, news and notes? You're dying. Um, Dying. Yeah. I think Catherine Bigelow is probably the most underappreciated Oscar winner of a fucking for film direction of all time. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Let's end on that because that's the fucking goddamn truth. But before we do... Please uh, hit us up on iTunes. Give us a five star if you like us. Uh, it helps a fucking lot. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Find us. Check it out. We love you guys. If you want to hear some stuff, hit us up. We're open to ideas. Email us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blockbuster Film School Podcast at gmail.com. Fuck shows that name. We're going to change that over to a real one soon with no Gmail. But don't worry. At the meantime, hit it up. But. Yeah, we love you guys. And remember, you know, drive your car as fast as you fucking can. And if you are an undercover agent and you fall in love with the cult leader of a bank robber surf group, it's okay, man. It's fucking okay. You're going to be okay.